All right, so we're going to do chapter seven. Now, I've, I've been asked by several people, uh, when are we done? Um, <laughs> and I, I can take that a number of ways, <laughs> but I usually take it negatively. Um, we have four more weeks. We have 11 weeks in this series. We'll be done right before Thanksgiving, but we will not be done with the book of Revelation. Uh, we're going to pick it back up in January. We're taking a, basically a chapter a week. So we're going to do 11 chapters this semester. Then we're going to come back and finish the second half of the book. There was no way I could cram it. Well, I could have crammed it into 11 weeks, but half of you wouldn't even be here uh, because you would have, your heads would have been exploding. Uh, so we're going to finish in four weeks, and then we'll take a break for the holidays, come back in January, and we'll do the, the second half of the book when it gets really squirrely. All right. So last week, we looked at chapter six. Chapter six was the beginning of the opening of the seals, those seven seals. We only saw six get opened. They were opened by the Lamb of God. And so basically, just by way of review, John sees the Lamb open the seals, and all these things start happening. And it's a chronological view of the seven years of tribulation. Remember, we believe it's a literal seven-year period of time. It's not metaphorical. It's not representative. It's real. It will take place. The first seal he sees open ushers in the time of peace, but it's a false peace. And we had four different um, individuals, four riders on four different colored horses. And we said that those four riders represent four manifestations of the same individual, the Antichrist. And it really is just revealing him kind of morphing into his true nature and his true character as the seven years um, expand. So the first time he, he enters the scene, he's a lack of a better term, he's a diplomat, and he brokers a peace treaty between the world and Israel. He allows them to rebuild the temple, uh, and he allows them to reinstitute the sacrificial system, and you can imagine the Jews are ecstatic, uh, but it's a false peace, because then we see civil unrest begin to happen all around the world. And again, this is not a localized event, this is global, and so it's not like anything we've ever seen before. As a result of the civil unrest, the civil war taking place, there's famine that happens and people begin to die. Uh, death of all kind, uh, kinds begins to take place. We see famine, disease, pestilence. We see wild animals. There's all kinds of stuff beginning to happen around the world. And then we saw on um, the, the fifth seal, this idea of the martyred tribulation saints. We get introduced to these people who have died as a result of the persecution of the Antichrist. And they're in the throne room. Remember the first four took place on the earth. And then we then have in, with the fifth seal back up in heaven, we see the martyred saints and we're going to find out who they are and how they got there this morning. And then we saw the opening of the sixth seal with the unleashing of the wrath of the lamb. And this is really a picture of the end of the tribulation when um, the full wrath of God comes on the earth. And we saw that with the end of uh, chapter six, those individuals of all kind, rich, poor, kings, peasants are hiding in caves and they're calling out to the rocks and the mountains to fall on them. Why? Because of the wrath of the lamb and the wrath of God. And so that's how chapter six ended. And um, all of this, according to the way we read, not only these, this book, but the entirety of scripture is, it happens after the rapture of the church. So once again, we are not there. 
we're not going through these things. And it's a, a basically an outline of the seven years of tribulation. The church is removed. Christ comes back for us. First Thess- Thessalonians chapter four, we are taken to be with him and that ushers in the time of the tribulation. And it's again, a literal seven year period of time. It's not metaphorical. And during this time, the antichrist will be a major player as will be the beast and the false prophet and Satan is in control and he's controlling the antichrist. But ultimately what we learned last week because of God's control of all things, remember he can only touch a fourth of the world. Um, God is continually revealing that it may look like antichrist is in control, but it's really God that's in control. And that's what I want you to get out of this this morning. This is less a, uh, a study of prophecy, and it is a study of prophecy, than it is a look at your God. Um, it tells us all kinds of things about the sovereign nature of your God, that he's in control of all things. And so that's what we're going to see even this morning. So chapter 7 opens up, and we have John, once again, he's having this vision, and it says, after this, I saw. So after what? This is a transitional statement. He loves these statements. We're going to see it twice this morning. It, it, he's, he's basically changing the focus once again. You remember when he was in the heavenly throne room and he's, he's looking at God and then suddenly he sees the scroll in his right hand and the focus changes to the scroll. Now we're seeing what? We're seeing something else happen. Chapter seven, by all accounts, is, is like an interlude. It's a break in the action. And if you remember everything we looked at last week with all the six seals being broken and all the literal hell breaking loose on earth, we need a break. We need to just kind of take a breath and that's what God's doing. Chapter seven is this interlude. We're not, we don't have the seventh seal open. That'll be next week with chapter eight. So there's this break in the action and that's what we see in this chapter. One more seal gets open. But at the end of chapter six, with the, the sixth seal, you remember there was a question that God asked. And it was asked by the people who were hiding in the mountains and the caves, calling for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them. They asked this question, the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? So it's this question that's left out there hanging at the end of chapter six, and we're gonna get it answered this morning in chapter seven, but whose wrath are these people talking about? Well, if you remember at the end of chapter six, him who is seated on the throne, and they're the ones who are acknowledging it's his wrath. These people who are hiding in the caves and calling for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them know that the wrath, everything that they've seen happen with the opening of the six seals is coming from the hand of God. And so they acknowledge God, and they also acknowledge that it's coming from the Lamb. They say, the wrath of the Lamb. Well, how do they know that? How do they know anything about God? Well, it's because of what we're going to find out this morning. It's going to be because there are people coming to faith in God, and those people are telling other people about faith in God through faith in Jesus Christ. And these people are realizing that these signs and wonders that are happening the blackened sun, the blood red moon, uh, stars falling from the sky are the handiwork of God and they recognize it, but they don't call out to God. They call out to the mountains and the hills to fall on them. So they're still unrepentant even during those final days. But they ask this question, who can stand? Who is powerful enough 
to stand against this kind of wrath. And they obviously don't believe they are because they're, they're asking for death. They're asking for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them. So this morning we get to see who can stand, who's going to make it through this seven years of incredible tribulation and trial and suffering. And remember, it's the wrath of God and the wrath of the lamb. This is God pouring out his wrath on the world, all people of all stripes and colors and creeds. Why? Because they deserve it. Because they are anti-God and ultimately anti-Christ. So we're going to see two groups this morning. Verses 1 through 8 are going to introduce us to the first group, and 9 through 17 will introduce us to the second group. Both of these groups will survive the judgment. Remember, judgment is coming on the earth in all kinds of forms. Ultimately, it's the, the judgment of God, and these people will survive. Now, some will die, but we'll see they go to be with him. Some will remain and make it all the way through the end and be here when Christ returns. But what we do know is that they will survive the wrath of the Lamb. So when all that judgment is finalized and we get to the very end of the book, in the very end of the seven years of tribulation, there will be survivors on this earth who are believers in Jesus Christ when he returns. And that's the point of the whole chapter. So what does it say? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow in the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now this is the first group. Now there are those, and one of the articles I gave you is by Michael Horton. Michael Horton is a, an incredible teacher, uh, an incredible theologian, has forgotten more than I've ever known, uh, but he's reformed in his theology and he doesn't believe what I'm gonna teach this morning. And he believes these two groups, verses one through eight being one and nine through 17 being another, are the same group. It's a reference to the same group. And he doesn't believe that they are the group that I'm going to tell you what they are. And you'll, you'll understand in just a second. And it's really interesting how this all shakes out when you read this and then you see what some people, how they interpret it. I hope you go, how did they get there? How did they arrive at that conclusion? But before we get to the 144,000, we've got to deal with these four angels. Who are the four angels and what's their purpose? Because that's the first thing he sees, Right. John always sees things in kind of a, a sequential order, and he notice, notices things. And so he sees these four angels. They're standing at the four corners of the earth, and there are, there are theologians who read this passage, and they discount the integrity of the Bible, the veracity of the Bible, because they say, see, the ancients believed in a flat earth. Not only did they believe it was flat, they believed it was square because it has four corners. Well, this, this is just a reference, just like we do, of the four the four aspects of direction, north, south, east, and west. It's not them believing in a flat, flat earth theory. And so it's kind of silly how we take these things and we try to make them something they're not, but it just simply says there's four angels and there's the wind coming from four different directions. Okay, but still, what does this mean? And who are these angels? Well, it's the same word we saw 
used of men because it can be either a man or an angel, a heavenly being. It's agalos, and it's literally a messenger of God. Now, in the context, we know these are not men. These are angels because of where they come from and what they're doing. These are actually angels, and we know in the scriptures that angels show up pretty regularly. In many cases, and the ones we're most familiar with, angels bring good news, like Gabriel to Mary. You're going to give birth to the Messiah, the Savior of the world. But they also bring bad news, and we don't tend to gravitate towards these passages. Angels have lots of bad news they bring. Here's just a couple of cases. 2 Kings 19, that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. That's bad news, especially if you're an Assyrian. Okay, so he shows up, he's sent by God, he's a messenger of God with a message of destruction and he brings it. And it says there were a lot of dead bodies. So he brought bad news. How about this one, 2 Samuel 24, when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, The Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it's enough, stay your hand. Who sent him? God. But then God says, stop, it's enough, stay your hand. It's exactly what we see in the passage this morning, that God is sending these four angels, but he tells them they're coming with destruction, but he says, hold off, wait a minute, something has to happen first because he refers to the winds. What's the wind? Well, the wind is almost always a symbol of power. Remember when the uh, disciples were in the boat and the wind was whipping the waves and they all got panicked. Here's all these seasoned fishermen and they begin to cry out to Jesus, why are you asleep? And they wake him up and he speaks and the wind dies down. He has power over the wind, but the wind is a display of power. And we see also in the scriptures that God uses the wind to bring destruction, to bring judgment. But he tells these angels to hold it back, hold back the wind. And the word that's used here in the Greek is one that has to do with to kind of hold, to restrain. It's like if you've got a, a dog that's, that's wanting to chase a squirrel and he's just going nuts and you're holding him back and he's pulling you and he's pulling you, you're restraining him. That's this word here. The angels are told to restrain, hold back the judgment of God. And and the picture that we have to keep in our minds here is that on earth, it looks like Antichrist is is in control. But the picture John keeps getting is who's, who's really in control? God is. God's the one in control. He's bringing the judgment, but he's also telling the angels to hold it back. Wait, I got something I need to do first. Here's just a few passages that talk about God and his relationship with the wind. One of them's in Psalm 104. You, God, ride upon the wings of the wind. The winds are your messengers. See, God is using the wind, and here it's symbolic of his destruction that something's going to happen. And we're going to see as we open up the seventh seal, or as the lamb does, that it's going to involve wind. It's going to involve trees. It's going to involve the land. It's going to involve the earth, not just people, but ultimately God's in control. How about Psalm 107? He, God spoke and the winds rose. Psalm 135, he sends the lightning with the rain and releases the wind from his storehouses. See, it's a picture of God's power, God's control, fire and hail, snow and clouds, wind and weather that obey him who? God. 
So here's these four angels sent by God, messengers of God. The message is one of destruction, but God says, hold on, wait, something's got to happen. Hold back, restrain what's coming until I do what I have planned to do. See, this is once again, a picture of God's sovereignty. He's got a plan and he's working the plan. Destruction is coming, but first he has something he wants to do something of extreme importance, and that leads us to these 144,000. Verse two says, I saw this other angel, and that literally means one of the same kind. It's not a reference to Jesus. It's another angel, a fifth angel, and he has a message, and it says, he's coming from the rising sun of the sun from the east with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea. So here's the fifth angel and he's got a message. Again, not Jesus, Jesus is in heaven. This is an angel who's coming to earth with a message. And he's got this seal of the living God. Now this is important, what, what's this have to do with? What's this seal? Well, it's the word that we used earlier of the seven seals that seal the scroll. But it can be used in, in a couple of different ways. One is the seal itself, the piece of wax with the seal in it but it can also refer to the ring that made the impression, the signet ring. And in this case, it's referring to that signet ring. He's got the ring of God Almighty and he's gonna do something with it. Well, what do you do with a signet ring? You seal something. You, you officially designate something with that seal and that's what he's coming to do. And it, it's basically saying this angel, this fifth angel has authority from God to do what he's about to do. And he's going to seal something or someone. But first he says, don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees. Again, we're going to see those three things happen with the opening of the seventh seal. So there's this interlude right now. Until, and this is key, until we, there's a great picture of the Trinity. Here's God speaking, but he uses we, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So something is going to happen. He's going to seal. But first, he's got to keep the other four angels from doing their job. And he's speaking on behalf of God saying, do not harm until these people are sealed. Again, it's a similar word, but this one has to do with the mark. So you got the signet ring and a mark that's made. So if you have a scroll that has a blob of wax on it with no seal, it doesn't mean anything. It's just closed up and anybody can break it. But if it's got the signet ring, the mark of somebody significant, then it is official. It, it designates ownership by someone. And so here we have this seal that's going to be placed on someone. And the word literally means to confirm, to authenticate. It's a mark of ownership. Okay. So who are these servants? And the word is really bond slave. Who are these people that this angel is coming to seal? And that's going to be critical to understanding the rest of this passage and the rest of the book. The seal is a mark and it says it's going to be placed on their foreheads. Now we could spend a lot of time worrying about and arguing about, is it a literal seal? Is it literally on their forehead? What kind of mark is it? We're told later in chapter 14 that it's the name of God and the name of the lamb. Now, does that mean it's literally written on their forehead? 
Is it a literal piece of wax on their forehead with a signet ring of God Almighty? I don't think so, but I don't know exactly what this looks like. But we're told it's on their forehead. And I believe that's important because when we read in chapter 13, this prophecy that's going to take place that you're all familiar with. In fact, this is probably the one thing everybody knows in this room about Revelation, the mark of the beast, right? 666 on their foreheads. Well, here's where we get it. If it, the false prophet causes all both small and great, rich and poor, both free and slave to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Now, if you've read anything about prophecy and you read the prophecy books that come out, you know, everybody gets twisted off about the fact that they now have technology that you can get a little implant in your hand and, you know, we track our dogs with them and now they're going to do that and the Antichrist is going to make you get this under your skin and that's how you're going to buy. And so, you know, I don't know. And who cares? I really don't know how it's going to take place. I really don't know what it's going to look like. All I know is it says the Antichrist is going to make everybody on earth get some kind of mark on their, what, right hand or their forehead. And it's going to really be a mark of ownership. Everybody will have to answer to him. And we do know that you won't be able to buy or sell unless you have this mark. He's going to control everything. But these people, the 144,000, are going to get a seal that marks them as being owned by God. Now, you can see the tension that creates, right? One group of people on earth are going to be marked by the mark of the Antichrist and can buy and sell. One group of 144,000 are going to have the mark of God on their forehead. That's going to win them a whole lot of friends, right? They won't be able to buy or sell. They'll be ostracized. They'll be set apart as being uniquely different. And we do know as the tribulation continues, the Antichrist will turn on the people of Israel and he'll turn on anyone who has any relationship with God Almighty and the Son of God. And so these people are being marked by the very thing that will cause persecution. It's the mark of God. And I believe whatever it is, it will be visible and recognizable. It'd be like if today, before we left the room, I had somebody come from a local tattoo parlor and, and I tattooed a cross on your forehead. You can't leave the room until you get a cross on your forehead. And then you had to go to work. Just imagine how much fun that would be. Explaining it. And if everybody who was a Christian was persecuted in this environment and you had the mark of Christ, the cross on your forehead, this is what it's going to be like. What does it look like? I don't know but I do think it will be recognizable. These people will be set apart by God as his. 144,000, but who are they? This is where it gets really squirrely and really interesting. And that's why I gave you these two articles. Here, guys, I can't stress enough. I don't want you to believe what I believe. I don't want you to believe what Christ Chapel believes. I want you to believe what the scriptures teach, which is going to mean that you've got to study what the scriptures teach. I'm presenting you one view, but I hope you'll go and study this and, and come to a, a conclusion what you believe. I don't mind if you disagree with me, if you know why you disagree with me. But if you just disagree with me because you were raised in a church that didn't teach this, I got a problem with that. Be able to defend what you believe. And that means you got to study. 
but there's a lot of debate about this. Here's, here's a quote from one of the commentaries I'm using, and I'm using commentaries that, that are covering both ends of the spectrum on this thing. Here's what Scott Duvall says. Despite what the passage says, well, he says, while some see the 144,000 referring to literal Israel or a Jewish remnant, perhaps suggested by the phrase from all the tribes of Israel, it's more likely that the group represents the true people of God or the whole company of the redeemed. This is a guy who believes that everything we're looking at in this passage, especially verses one through eight, is referring to the church. So he's therefore not a believer in the rapture. The church doesn't get removed. The church is going to be here for the tribulation. And many, many believe that we're already in the tribulation and we're going through it right now. Well, if that's true and it's a literal seven years, then it could be right around the corner. But then they basically say, well, it's not a literal seven years. It's a metaphorical seven years. Seven being the number of perfection. Therefore, it's just wholeness, completeness. We're in it right now. So how you come down on this is important to how you interpret the rest of this book and Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel and many other portions of scripture. So he believes that it's not Israel. These verses are referring to the church. Okay. But here's where I bump my head against a brick wall. Verse four, and I heard the number of the seal, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Hmm. Why is that the church? Well, there's a, there's a, a number of passages they go to, Galatians 6 being one of them. But I don't think they hold water. I don't think they can be supported. And if you want to know why, I'll tell you. But we're not going to go into it this morning. I read this and I see every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then he goes on and he's very specific. And he says, the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad and Asher and Naphtali and Manasseh. And he goes on, he lists the tribes. He's very specific about this. What does he see? He sees 144,000. And yet there are those who want to make this say something completely different. Why can't we let it say what it says? Well, it's because you bring to the passage your particular view on eschatology and you force the passage to say what you want it to say. We can all be guilty of this. And there are those who would say, that's exactly what I'm doing. That's why you have to go back and you have to study other passages of scripture and you have to look at what the Bible says in its entirety. See, these individuals who are mainly from a, a reform perspective, don't believe in the rapture of the church. That is critical and crucial because if you discount or discard the rapture, it doesn't happen, it's not real, it's not part of scripture, then that will basically affect how you interpret the rest of the book and it affects how you interpret who these people are. I think there's a real problem with this because I believe as I read this and I hope as you read these articles and wrestle with them that there is a forcing of the passage to make it say what you want it to say. I read the passage and I see Israel. I see 12 different tribes listed. I don't see the church listed. This is from another commentary that I'm using, Robert Thomas. He says, no clear cut example of the church being called Israel exists in the New Testament or in ancient church writings until AD 160. This fact is crippling to any attempt to identify Israel as the church. See, what the, the other side, if you want to put it that way, says of this passage is the 144,000 are Christians 
who are still alive during the tribulation because the church was never raptured. Well, that changes everything about not only the passage in the rest of the book, but it changes everything about what you believe about Israel and God's relationship with Israel. We are not um, replacement theologians. We don't believe the church replaced Israel. We have been grafted into Israel, right? That's what the scriptures teach us. But if you graft something into, and I know none of you are farmers, but if you graft a branch into a tree, you have to have the tree, right? For this to work. We have been grafted into Israel. Israel doesn't go away. They haven't disappeared. God still has plans for Israel. And I think what this passage teaches is God is going to do for Israel what Israel couldn't do for themselves and refused to do for themselves. He's going to redeem. So it clearly says that they're the sons of Israel. And then he's very specific about the number. And it's not, I believe, speaking of some spiritual Israel, the church, because the church isn't here. They're Jews. And they're very specific Jews. And it goes on to tell us more about them. Look at chapter 14. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. This is in further into the future. Now, where are they? They're standing on Mount Zion and they're singing a new song before the throne. They're in heaven and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one can learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth, which means they had been on the earth. They had been going through the tribulation. Now look at this. It's these who have not defiled themselves with women for they're virgins. So they're not only Jews, we, we find out later they're all males and they're virgins. Why? Well, I'm just speculating, but if you're unmarried, you got a lot of time on your hands. You're not distracted. You're, you don't have a family to take care of, a wife to take care of. And God is very specific. It's 144,000, 12,000 from every tribe. And they have been chosen by God, sealed by God, because God has a purpose for them. They've been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. Now think about this. If your theology says they're the church, how can they be the first fruits? Because I'm a believer. You're a believer. Paul was a believer. Peter was a believer. How are they the first fruits? The first fruits is always the first of something more to come. Well, there's a whole bunch that have come before them. I think this is a reference to during the tribulation, they're the first fruits of more of the people of God, the Jews who are going to come to faith in God during the tribulation because of their efforts. Why is God sealing them? He's got a job for them to do. God's not just sealing them to take them to heaven any more than God saved you to take you to heaven. God saved you so that you might be his ambassador. The same thing's going to be true of them. 144,000. Literal number, not metaphorical, metaphorical, not allegorical. And there's a purpose behind this. And I don't see any reason to treat this passage any other way. So what do we got? We got 144,000 Jews, all males, virgins, unmarried, and they are sealed by God with a purpose. And I believe that purpose is for them to tell others about faith in Christ. 
Well, you may go, well, how did they get saved? If the Holy Spirit left with the church, how'd they get saved? What you got to remember, guys, the Holy Spirit is deity. He's part of the Godhead. He's omnipresent. So yes, he leaves because he lives within us. He leaves in the sense that he departs with every believer, but it doesn't mean he vacates the premises. The Holy Spirit, just like God and the Son, are still at work. He's still at work. And it will be through the actions of the Holy Spirit that these 144,000 will come to faith. We know from the New Testament, it's the Holy Spirit who seals you. And he's going to seal them. They're going to come to faith because God Almighty is going to open their eyes so that they can see the truth of the gospel. And they're going to tell others about the change that's taken place. And that leads us to the second group. Who are these people? It says, after I looked, after this, another transition, different group, not the same group. Behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Now, if they're the same group, how come he can number them in the first eight verses and now he can't? It's a different group. And the number here in the Greek is one of great magnitude. It's unbelievably large that nobody can figure it out. It's millions upon millions a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, all tribes, all peoples, all languages, different group, not Jews. First eight verses, Jews, 12 tribes. Now every tribe, every people, every language, because the Jews, the 144,000 are going to get busy and they're going to start telling people about Christ. And we're going to see an evangelistic effort take place like none that's ever happened on earth before. And why? Because it's the action of God. See, the book of Revelation is not just a book of wrath. It's a book of mercy. It's a book of God's grace, even during the worst times on earth. And he sees these people and they're standing before the throne and before the lamb from every nation, every tribe, every people. And they're clothed in white robes. It's a picture of righteousness. They have been made right. Why? Because of their faith in Christ. But this multitude is important. Again, separate group. And they're the fruit of 144,000 evangelists who are excited to tell others. And they tell people from every stripe and color. Isn't it just like God to take the, the very people who he chose and made his own back in the Old Testament and then who rejected him and rejected his son in the New Testament to take those very same people and use them to be evangelists. Isn't that what they were supposed to do from day one? When God called Abram out of Ur, he said, you will be a blessing. I will make you a great nation and you will be a blessing to all the nations. Yes, that was fulfilled in Jesus, but the Israelites were always supposed to be a blessing. They were supposed to be an example of what it means to live righteously before God Almighty, but they never did. And yet God's going to use them. And we see these people standing before the throne because somebody shared the gospel with them during the tribulation. And now they're dressed in white. Where are the 144,000? They're still back on earth. They're still doing their job. They're still evangelizing the lost because they're still being sealed. They're still being kept by God. And the inference is during the seven years, they will remain alive. They will not die. They will be protected by God to such a degree that they'll be able to continue to evangelize until this great multitude comes to faith. 
But what do we see these people, this great multitude doing up in heaven as John sees them? They're crying out and they're shouting praises to God and the Lamb. Why? Well, where were they? They were back on earth, right? They were going through difficulty. They were going through famine and pestilence and disease and being attacked by wild animals. And they were suffering in all ways because the wrath of God was coming on all the world. And now where are they? They're in heaven. They've been redeemed and they're praising God. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. They are ecstatic and they're worshiping. This, this is not us, the church. This is people who were alive during the tribulation, who've come to faith, who've died because of their faith, been martyred, and now they're standing in heaven before God and they're praising him. Why? Because of his mercy, because of his grace, because of his love that he did for them what they couldn't do for themselves. And they praise him. This ought to remind us of how we ended last week. What were the people on earth doing at the end of the sixth seal? They were in those mountains, in those rocks, and calling out, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. They're calling to the rocks and the mountains, but they're not calling out to God. What are the people in heaven doing? They're calling out to God. See, the first group would rather die than be saved. The group in heaven are calling out in gratitude to God because they have been saved. Did they deserve it? No, but God did it. Once again, the picture of the mercy of God. They fall on their faces, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, and they too say, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Everyone is worshiping God. And then I love this. One of the elders turns to John and he says, hey, John, who are these? Who are these people clothed in white robes? Where did they come from? And I love this. John is like you and me when he's given a question he doesn't know an answer to. Well, you know. I don't need to tell you. You know. Why don't you tell me? He doesn't know. He doesn't have a clue. So the elder tells him, he says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, that being the last three and a half years of the seven years. It gets worse. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe, wipe away every tear from their eyes. Do you see the picture, guys? It's a picture of them in heaven with God, with the son, and they are worshiping because they now have no more pain, no more sorrow, no more hunger. They aren't susceptible to famine. They aren't susceptible to the attacks of the Antichrist because God has redeemed them. Once again, from where? The tribulation. In the midst of the worst suffering on the earth, the wrath of God and the Lamb, God is still bringing people to faith. And where is God in the midst of this? Where is Jesus in the midst of this? See, what do we see? The multitude is where? They're in heaven. They were on earth, but they've been redeemed. Where's the lamb? He's in the midst of the throne. See, this is a picture of he's not yet come back to earth. He's, this isn't the end yet. He hasn't come back in his second coming. This is during the tribulation, people coming to faith in Christ, and more will die and, and be martyred. The tribulation's not yet over. But this little interlude of chapter seven gives us a break and a, 
encouragement that even during these days, God is at work redeeming these martyred saints. And we know there's going to be more. So it says, God will wipe away every tear of these people. They died because they bore the seal, because they had become believers. They suffered for their faith. They endured the wrath of the Antichrist, but now they've been saved because God redeemed them because of the work of these 144,000 Jews. And that's just the way God works, that the children of Abraham that he chose become the messengers of the gospel for people going through wrath. And many millions will come to faith in Christ. Now I'm gonna close with this verse, and this is critical for us to understand. The children of Abraham, the 144,000, will become those who become evangelists. Look at what Paul says in Romans. He's writing to people who are predominantly Greeks, Gentiles, not Jews. Listen to what he says. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. In other words, that tells us that God has a number of Gentiles, non-Jews, who are going to be saved. And then the church age will end and he'll come back for those people, you and me included. There's a number. What's the number? I don't know. God knows. But there is a day when it ends. And then he goes on, he says, and so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them, Israel, when I take away their sins. It's not talking about the church. It's talking about Israel. Here's Paul, New Testament, clearly stating that God is not done with Israel. And we've seen this morning that God's going to use 144,000 Jews to become evangelists to the world. And if nothing else, guys, it ought to remind you of God's faithfulness, his mercy, his grace. He's not done redeeming. And even when the tribulation starts, whether you believe in the rapture or not, he will still be redeeming because that's the kind of God we worship. So here's your questions. Why is it important that God keep his promises to the nation of Israel? What would it say about God if he didn't? How could we believe the promises he's made to us? In other words, what he said to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David, to all the patriarchs, everything he said about them and promised to them, if he's not going to keep those promises, why should we believe his promises? When you think about the degree of suffering that's going to take place during the tribulation, what does it say about God that he's still saving some when nobody on earth deserves it? And finally, read Genesis 12, 1 through 3. How can you see this promise of God fulfilled in today's passage concerning the 144,000 Jews? Well, Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these men. I know they've uh, taken in a lot and that, Father, this is uh, some deep information, but yet, Father, at the core of it, really, it's a picture of your faithfulness, that you are a gracious God, merciful God, that, yes, you are a wrathful God, you're a just God, you're a righteous God who has to bring judgment on the world. But at the same time, in your mercy and grace, you are extending an offer, an invitation to these people who don't deserve it, just like you did to me and every other man in this room who's become a follower of Jesus Christ. And we're grateful, Father. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you're in control and that we can trust you. Bless the time around the tables, Father, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.